1: Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Real Wealth, Real Health. Our guest today is Bruce Stachenfeld. Bruce is a well-known, prolific real estate attorney, investor, and author, best known as the real estate philosopher. Having defined a specific niche in his career over 20 years ago, Bruce has since become a real estate junkie who practices, writes on, and speaks to the subject every day. We speak with Bruce on the power of remaining focused in your passions and mission in order to carry the strongest influence and become a true expert at what you do. With that mindset, Bruce has been able to build an empire of brand recognition and trust associated with his name. In our podcast episode, Bruce tells his story of stumbling into real estate decades ago, how he has become so knowledgeable on the subject, and what continues to drive his love for it today. He also shares with us the three factors he considers and the two questions he asks himself before investing in any real estate opportunity. Believe it or not, he does not advise swinging for the fences. You'll hear this and so much more about Bruce's insights, humble approach, and expertise in our episode. Bruce, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me here. Yeah. Thank you so much for taking time out of your very busy schedule to have this conversation with us.
0: It, it, it really is my pleasure. I'm looking forward to to being grilled by you. So grill <laughs>
1: <laughs> I mean, you've been, you're so gracious. You're so gracious. You know, we're really looking forward to this conversation. You, you mean the I mean, I'm going to use this word, the wealth of knowledge that you have in real estate really is astonishing. When I was reading through some of your book chapters and, you know, you, you know us through alpha and you invest with us, which is, you know, which is wonderful for us. And one of the first things that I really wanted to talk about with you is why and how did you pick real estate as an industry to build your career and with such
0: depth as well? Let me answer it in reverse, which doesn't make sense until I answer it. (laughs) Right now today, what what I am is I'm this sort of hodgepodge. I'm a real estate junkie would probably be the best best way to to say it. I mean, you know, I'm a lawyer still, a real estate lawyer. I've been a real estate lawyer for, I think, almost 40 years, if I should admit it. I am an entrepreneur. I started my, my own law firm about 20, almost 25 years ago in real estate. I've gotten pretty well known through my real estate philosopher writings, where I, I try to think of ideas in the real estate industry. I'm a speaker. I, I'm connected to so many different people. I spend my days, my nights, everything else, trying to meet everyone in the real estate uh, industry. And yes, I don't. I don't want to sound, you know, in, a, in an arrogant way, but I, I'm. I'm very knowledgeable about the real estate industry. It's my hobby and my passion and my job. That's where I am today. So you asked me a good question. How did I pick real estate? The answer is, drum roll, I didn't pick it at all, okay? Nobody picks real estate when they go to law school or growing up, unless of course their dad or their mom is in the real estate business. And my dad was a doctor, good guy, but didn't know diddly about real estate except he bought a house once. So when I started my career, I was picking between litigation and corporate work, like everybody else, you know, it was a little thing. I, I did go to Harvard Law School. I should brag about because what the heck. But I I, I started at a, at a law firm and I I, I was going to do corporate. And then I said, all right, I ended up litigation. So I started doing litigation and I loathed it. I hated it so much. I, I just couldn't believe that I went to law school to do this thing. It was so awful. So finally I finally gave up and said, all right, to the managing partner, could I go into the corporate department? And he said, well, you know, we don't really need anyone there. You know, we just hired a bunch of people. Why don't you go into the real estate department? And I still remember the conversation because, you know, those little, you know, big moments in your life, you you never forget them. I remember saying to him, what do they do? I had no idea. Anyway, I went into the real estate department and I really just loved it from the moment I got there. It It was fun because... The thing that's cool about being a real estate lawyer, if you're a good one, you become a real estate business person as well because the law and the business they just mix together. And it's been it's been just a great ride. I can't say I loved every day of it, but it's been a great ride and then going back to today, here I am, you know, spending, you know, my whole life in the real estate world and that's the long winded I hope not too long-winded answer to your question. No, I appreciate
1: that so much. I was, I was laughing as you were saying that, cause it's the same for me and you know, how do you get into real estate? Well, I didn't choose it. I, I stumbled into it and then I loved it. And so I love the story because I think it's so similar for most, for most people. I don't know anyone who chose to go into real estate. I mean, Dan, it's the same for you, right?
2: Yeah, more or less. I mean, I was a capital markets lawyer you know, effectively a high yield lawyer almost by default because I graduated law school in 2010 and you know, the credit markets were, were shut down effectively and there were no IPOs. And so, you know, I, I fell into that that world and I always loved deal work. There's something exciting about working on deals, uh, but being a lawyer, like, like Bruce said, you know as he felt about being a litigator just really wasn't for me. And, and that's kind of how I eventually fell into this role with, with Alpha and yeah, I, I love working on deals. It's exciting, it's fun keeps things interesting. So yeah, that's my, you know, my stumble, my stumble story, so to speak
1: great we just coined a new term this the stumble story so so bruce just one of the things that really struck me about you and and your story is you are all about niches i say niche is that or niche so you really focus like your your whole mo it seemed to me is like become such an expert at what you do and and you want to know everyone in real estate you want to know everything about real estate you like live breathe eat sleep real estate you know do you think that that is one of the factors that's contributed to your um, success, and and I guess are you really that passionate about real estate, or do you do it because it's it's necessary for you to be so successful?
0: You've asked me a bunch of questions, so the whole niche idea. This was another book I, I wrote. I guess it's almost eight years ago. Called "If You Want to Get Rich, Build a Power Niche." And the title's a little silly, but the whole idea is 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 sort of like it's counterintuitive but it, it makes a lot of sense. If you're kind of all things to all people, you're sort of irrelevant. No one remembers anything about you. But if you're insanely focused on one thing and you tell everybody about that one thing, they remember it. And so for me, you know, as I said earlier on, I didn't you know, pick real estate. It was just a luck thing. But I started to realize over time, you know, I started my law firm with the idea we would be all things to all people. We were gonna do the same as and Arps, but it would just be smaller and better. You think about it, it's kind of stupid goal, right? But that's what we were doing. And then after all, we realized like, we're really good at real estate. Amazing clients are the most sophisticated transactions on the planet in real estate and everything else is, you know, kind of flopping along. But as soon as we said to to everybody, we are going to be 100% real estate, everything changed. Now think what it means, okay? When you do that, you're effectively telling every other client in the world, that's not real estate. Don't come here. Think how scary that is. And what I know your listeners do all different things, but whatever they're doing, think about what it is. You know, you're probably selling something to someone in the business that you're in. Whether you're a doctor, whether you're a dentist, whether you're this or that, you're, you're doing something, and part of what you're doing is trying to attract third parties to do business with you. And if you say, well, you know, I can dentist anything, you know, okay, well, you know. It sounds, it sounds a little like baloney because you're saying you're so good at everything in the world. But if you say, I am the world's greatest expert at whitening front teeth, I just made that up. And maybe it's silly. But if you say that's all you talk about, front teeth whitening, front teeth whitening all the time, you've created what I would call a power niche. Okay, because you've sort of narrowed it down. And you haven't really shunned everything else, but you're saying this is what I'm really, really, really good at. And anyone that's got a front tooth that's not white, you know, is going to be oh, you got to talk to this guy because he's the expert in that. And then you start to think about what that means. It starts to develop in a very powerful kind of virtuous cycle because people start thinking of this expert, you get to charge more for what you do because you are the expert. And then you find that even if you kind of made up the whole thing, you start to find that there's just some special things maybe about front teeth and whitening and you start to learn and everyone's sending you articles on it. All of a sudden you really truly are the world's greatest expert on front tooth whitening. Sorry, that's such a stupid example, but that is effectively what I did in real estate. I can't say I planned it. I didn't. It just was sort of a thing that grew over time. But then I realized I was onto something. And whatever industry that you're in, whatever you're doing, if you basically create a little niche or niche, as Adapia is saying, either one, if you create your own little niche and then you try your best to own it and tell everyone about it, it explodes and you become extraordinarily valuable in that niche and you have what's called a monopoly. And one thing about monopolies we all know is that they have pricing power. And so, as they said, I didn't plan it, but that's where my career went. And the more I do what I do, talking about real estate, constantly telling you that Autopia thinks I'm a real estate junkie, whatever you call me. She's right. That's what I do. And the more I do it, the more it works. Anyway, that's, that's, that's kind of my story and I'm sticking to it.
1: I really appreciate that perspective. And especially because within real estate... Even just like when we say real estate, there's so there's so much within it that just deep diving into real estate in and of itself, you, you could find like the the niche within real estate. Now, you and I before we we hit record, we were we were quickly talking, and and you were mentioning that some advice that you would like to give our our listeners is around what you described as your uh, biggest incompetence. So would, which, which is hard for me to even use that word to speak about you. So, so could you share what, what you were, what you wanted to share with the audience about this? Because it's, it's such an important um, part of this conversation.
0: So so, uh, we are heading to my incompetence and it's an (laughs) example. This is the, the, the listeners are, you know, well-off human beings and, and, other, and businesses that are, you know, investing in real estate, thinking of investing in real estate and hoping to get some tidbits on that. And I'm going to tell you up front, that is the one thing, I, I hope it's the one thing that I'm completely incompetent at, and it's deliberate. And let me explain what I mean. It's not as bad as you think. So if you think about investing in real estate, okay, you know, theoretically, you have to be able to identify an asset And then sort of do the math and understand where it's located and and the market, the demographics, look at spreadsheets, do all of this stuff to figure out, is it a good investment? Okay, now I'm only one Bruce and I work still 60, 70 hours a week doing all the things that I do to become as knowledgeable as possible about the industry as, as, as I think just about any human being. But let's think about the implications of what I just said about an investment. So theoretically, there's a building, there's what, 25 million buildings in the world or in New York City, there's I think something like 60,000 buildings or something. To know if it's a good investment, theoretically, I'd have to like walk around and know the buildings and know everything that's going on. I'd have to know the demographics. I'd have to be able to read the spreadsheets. It would be an enormous undertaking. And then think about it even more, more. I would be theoretically competing in my analysis of whether it's a good investment, against all these other people that are doing that. They're spending every minute of their lives doing what what I'm doing, something different. They're spending all their time figuring out where the good investments are and the bad investments and analyzing all the spreadsheets. And when I think about it, there is absolutely no point whatsoever to me doing that. Once I realized that, I said, I'm going to be deliberately deal agnostic because there's no point for me to try to become whatever the opposite of agnostic is. So then I said, all right, well, What does that leave us for investing, okay? And I have come up with some theories and themes that have stood me very well. And I'm going to give you this advice. So here's how I think, well, here's how I invest in real estate and how I think you should do it. I'm assuming you're not the guy walking around looking at all the buildings and you're like me trying to figure out like what where to write a check. First, think who you're giving the check to, okay? Is this person really good at what they're doing? And this is the one place you should do the deep dive. Okay, there's so many people that are the most wonderful salespeople in the world, and they're full of, I don't know if I'm allowed to swear on this. You know what I would have said, but they're full of it. Okay, and they're great salespeople and they're talking about how wonderful the investment is. Understand their track record. Have they actually bought something and made money on it? And have they done it again and again and again and again for many, many years? If not, I don't know why I would invest with this person. I mean, you might get lucky, but there's no real proof of it. Instead, look for the party. That is doing the same thing all the time. All he does is multifamily, boring things, and central business, you know, whatever it is, but he does the same thing every time. He's been doing it for 20 years. And his track record is extraordinary. Not that he killed it on some deals, but that he virtually never lost money on anything. That's your man or your woman, somebody who doesn't lose, not the winner that doesn't lose her. And this is. The biggest thing to do get the right person you're investing with and if you don't have that real confidence that this person really knows their stuff and has proved it over many years just skip that one there's no no uh, point to it second thing that person should have an absolute perfect track record of honesty the slightest thing that has ever happened an accusation 20 years ago of whatever. Just skip that that person. There's an old saying, a guy who will steal a chicken will steal a horse. It's true. I have never seen anyone that made a little lie not make a big one later. You don't need to do that. The third thing, if you don't know what's going on, you don't understand it, just don't do it. There's no reason to do it. Every single time I've ever invested anything, I didn't know what it was and somebody told me it was really cool. I've lost 100% of my money every single time. Skip that. All right. So now that you've narrowed it down to the right person, There's two questions to ask, just two, but these are critical. How much of your personal money are you putting in the deal? If the answer is close to nothing, or he's putting in 500,000, he's getting a 500,000 acquisition fee, or one way or another, he's not putting in any of his money, don't invest. He doesn't have any confidence in it. Why the hell should you? So Don't even touch that. And then the second question that goes with it, how are you treated differently from me? OK, and you should be, you know, the, invest- the the guy putting the deal together should be. He's doing all the work. He should have more upside because he's doing all the work. But let's understand, you know, how different is his investment from mine? Is his investment so ridiculously good, like with fees up the kazoo, an insane promote, ridiculous upside that, OK, he's risking his money, but his reward is so crazy different from mine that I should be a little nervous? Or is, you know, he getting a reasonable additional upside as compared to me? If those two questions are answered in the right way, then I write the check. Okay, I can't evaluate the deal as we said, but I've evaluated the person. I think they're, they know their business. They know what they're doing. They're honest was their own capital. They don't have crazy rewards. Go ahead. Like, What else are you really going to do? Are you going to drive by the building and you have some brilliant way to evaluate it? I doubt it. That's how I invest. I have found when I do that, virtually every single time it has worked out. Okay, I maybe mean, even every single time. And when I've done something different, virtually every time, it's failed.
2: So I, I promise our listeners we didn't rehearse this, but that's literally like a point by point of you know the alpha's you know operating partner investment criteria from finding you know expertise in one thing, groups that are laser focused, long track records and all the, the qualitative things, the the transparency, the honesty, and you know this as well as, as anyone, Bruce, you know, historically real estate has been a little bit of the wild, wild west. There aren't necessarily a ton of, well, there are rules and regulations, but people tend to stir it around them. It's an industry where deals are marketed based on forward-looking projections and assumptions. And so there's a lot of room to manipulate numbers. And there are a lot of dishonest actors out there. And the point that you made is a really valid one. Like we wanna find those groups that there is no question they're being honest and, and transparent. And so everything you said there's you know s- spot on from my perspective.
1: Bruce, thank you so much for that. That was like, as Dan said, just exactly the way that Alpha thinks about it. And so I know our listeners are really gonna appreciate it because they hear this from us all the time. Our investors hear this from us all the time. Like the way that we were a sponsor first company. And as we've grown as well and seen these market shifts, I just, I wonder for, for you right now, what are your thoughts if you have any, and if you don't, it's totally okay on the current market as it relates to risk and investing in, in real estate today, just given some of the market dynamics that, that are currently taking place.
0: Okay, well, look. When you say the market, you know, real estate, as as we all know, is not a, a market. There's the housing market. There's you know, central business district office. There's industrial. There's like a zillion markets. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the things I do in my book, I, I know we'll talk about that a little later, but I try my best to answer this question pretty broadly and as specifically as possible, going through the different asset classes and making my you know quantifications, predictions, and, and analysis. The things I would throw as an answer that I think might be useful is this when I think about, you know, the the risk and the market, I, I try to to keep two things in mind and they're sort of the same, but they're maybe different wording, but, but it's the same thing. And I mentioned this a minute ago in investing in general, the goal is not to win. It's to avoid losing. And I've been around for a really, really long time in the real estate world. I've watched clients kill it and bust. And I've watched clients that just keep doing it. And I've watched everything. And the, the ones that, that that survive the test of time, they don't swing for the fences, but they never strike out. They just always hit a single, a double, a triple. And once so, well, there's a home run. They don't time the market. They don't say, oh, the market's low, I should buy, or the market's high, I should sell, because sooner or later, they're just wrong. Nobody can time the market. You know, Warren Buffett has the saying, which we've all may, maybe heard, his two rules. Rule number one, never lose money. Rule number two, don't forget rule number one. Silly, but that's how he does it because he knows that losing is much worse than winning is, is good. And if you just do some stupid math thing, you have a dollar and it goes up 50%, it's worth a dollar fifty, And then it goes down 50%, it's worth 75, right? I mean, right, the, the down hurt more than the up was good. So the goal really is to avoid losing. So when you're looking at whatever part of the market, you're thinking of buying a house, shouldn't be an investment as a house. That's something, you know, maybe I shouldn't even mention that. It's just something you buy because you want it. Whatever it is you're investing in, you know, can you lose on it? You know, industrial, for example, is absolutely soared to ridiculous heights and people keep buying and buying and buying and keeps going up. And then you have to say to yourself, well, let's think about it. Every single possible data point says industrial should keep booming. It really should, right? I mean, you can't find anything wrong with it. On the other hand, you're paying a ridiculous multiple for it. I think it's like a two and a half cap or something crazy. So if you're right, you know, you're know you not going to do that. Well, maybe you'll do fine. But if you're wrong, you can get smacked. So you might want to think about that. That's not to say you shouldn't buy industrial. A lot of my clients are, and they're loving it. And I don't have that ability to assess whether you should buy industrial. So one thing is, you know, never lose money, you know, and try to avoid losing more than winning. And the second thing is a phrase that, uh, I don't know if I made it up or not, but I always try to think about, are you being overpaid for risk? Okay, every deal has risk in it. And there's no question, even T-bills, right? The government may decide someday, stop paying everyone back, you know, it could happen. Obviously we think the risk on a T-bill is as low as it could possibly be. And the, and, but then you're getting a reward, which is low too, and you're assessing risk and reward. And when I'm looking at a real estate investment or, or client is, are we being overpaid for risk? So dissecting that one level down. so so if you're thinking about where you're investing okay you could be right you could be a first mortgagee, you could be high yield debt you could be preferred equity or you could be common equity investing into a transaction and in all these things you have to sort of say you know what are the risks and what are the rewards and, and it's you know it sort of sort of de- depends on on the individual investment. So I don't know out of PF I can tell you, you know, the market in general. But I will tell you one last thing, which is this. There is an enormous amount of capital chasing real estate right now. Okay. You know, people, you know, that are, you know, I guess maybe a lot like me, doctors, dentists, lawyers, you know, we all have savings and we're trying to figure out what to do with it. And, you know, it used to be you go to your wealth manager and she would say, well, you know, Bruce, you know, you should put 40% into stocks and 60% into bonds or or the other way around. And well, you know, that was what they told you. And then, oh, we're going to put 10% into alternatives. And what's an alternative? Well, it's like gold and silver and real estate. Okay, cool. And then they said a few years ago, whoa, 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 you know, we're going to have another asset class called real estate. So it's going to be stocks, bonds, alternatives and real estate. So what does that mean? It means all the wealth managers are telling people, oh, you should put some into real estate. So money is flowing in that direction. And that is really changing a lot of the real estate world as permanent capital vehicles and other things that throw off a kind of a stable yield is one of the flavors of the month. And I would also say, you know, as an investor, if you really have no clue what you're doing and you at least acknowledge that to yourself, but you do want to invest in real estate, it's probably not the worst idea to be thinking about one of these major permanent capital vehicles like Blackstone's Public Reach, or some company that just, you know, is saying, look, the odds are real good I'm going to get you 4% or 5% forever, and we won't lose any money. Yeah, probably not the worst thing to do. I know that was a ramble and it wasn't quite an answer, but in my own defense, your question was so broad, I could have said anything.
1: I I I totally take that one. It's on me. <laughs> it's totally on me. It no, it was a really Thank you for that answer. It's such an important thing for people to to think about. And again, you hit on some points that, of course, we're seeing too all this capital chasing deals and cap rates coming down and prices going up. And you wonder, like, can these continue to go up? Because who's going to be left holding the bag when you want to sell it? Uh, especially if you have a like a shorter ish turnaround. I would say you know five years these days is considered long, but you know, unless you're holding forever, maybe like some big institutions or family offices, then maybe that's okay. But for an investor looking at syndication, so the way we look at it is, you know, is, is it reasonable to think that we're going to be able to exit this at a correct valuation for our investors and for how it's been underwritten? And thanks for bringing up REITs. I was actually going to ask you what you thought of REITs. And I like the way you frame that for somebody that just wants some exposure to real estate from a diversification perspective, um and maybe is not inclined at all to really dig into private real estate so i appreciate that that look on on because it's very different the fee structure is different the tax benefits are different and so you know obviously we're dealing with investors that are, are looking for something different than just mm-hmm. exposure so i really appreciate i really appreciate that and the last thing that you mentioned and i have this conversation a lot with with people is that your primary residence isn't an investment even though a lot of people might be thinking that these days. Can you elaborate a little bit on that? Just because I think it's a very salient point, especially for people who are just getting into real estate investing and, and thinking, perhaps they're thinking that, that their home is an investment.
0: All right, I'll stick my neck out. I think thinking your home is an investment is just dumb. Do you? And I know I read somewhere and I couldn't find it that I think over the last hundred years, you know, home prices have gone up an average of like one or 2% a year. It is not an investment. You should buy a house if you want a house. I mean, I have my house. I love my house. I'm like, I walk around it and I smile. It makes me feel so wonderful to have a house. Okay, but it's not a good investment. Yeah, it probably went up somewhat over the years, but we all remember that mom and dad, depending on your age, bought their house in the 1950s for 86,000 and then they sold it for two and a half million 25 years later when junior graduated college. Okay, and we think, oh, well, all we have to do is find a house for 86,000 and sell it for two and a half million. Sorry. Okay. That could happen. You might buy a house now for two and a half million and in 20 years sell it for 18 million. That could happen. But just as as likely, you know, that house will be worth 1.5 million in 20 years. You just don't know what's going to happen. So you start thinking the risk reward of this. Okay. You know, if you're scraping your money together to buy that house, okay, you know, let's pretend your house is going to cost you $250,000 and you're going to put I don't know, $25,000 down. And you, you, know, you got your first job out of college, and you after a couple of years, you screwed together the $25,000. You have your entire net worth. You just bought a house. Ooh, okay. If you wanted a house, that's wonderful. But now, if you start thinking about it, you know, you had closing costs that add up to, I don't know, one, two, three, four ish percent to buy it. If you ever sell it, it's the same thing. So there's probably five ish, 10 ish percent on the buy and sell side that just wiped out your 25000 if the house goes up 10%, it's now worth uh, 275, you just double your 25 grand and you're feeling pretty smart. On the other hand, the house went down 10% and we've seen house prices going, You just lost every single cent you have in the world, okay? So now going back to the themes I was talking about investing, I mean, is this a situation where you're not gonna lose money and you're sure of it? No, maybe, are you overpaid for risk? I don't think so. The tax benefits are disappearing. And I don't know if they're all gone, but most of them are gone. So why do you buy the house? Well, the only reason, and I'm pretty damn sure of this, is because you want the house and buy it and love it. But don't think this is your best investment. You could take that 25 grand and you could invest it in real estate uh, through alpha, hopefully. But you could take that money and invest it in real estate or stocks or bonds or a diversified portfolio, whatever your wealth manager tells you or put every single cent into that house and i don't i don't see it as a as a smart investment strategy
1: i really appreciate that a lot especially because of the way the housing market currently is also being driven and people just sending, spending silly amounts of money, buying sight unseen. And I'm not sure, you know, cause I don't obviously don't talk to everybody for what reason. And, and then there's a lot of house hacking going on, but regardless, like there's different ways to approach it, but I, but I think mm, there's a lot of tension and emotion currently that's driving the, the housing market. So uh, I just did want to touch on that because sometimes people think of it that way. And some people have done, done well. Like I know I've done well on a primary residence purchase, but remodeled and, you know, but I'll never do it again <laughs> It was ever. It was so much work. I didn't know what I was getting myself into. Luckily, luckily it turned out because of the market last year fluke. Otherwise I probably would have been underwater on the amount of money that we spent. So, you know, there's a well, lot of you know,
0: things. Anecdotally, I bought a house I guess I could say it's Cape May, New Jersey. I love the house more than life itself. And we paid a lot of money for it. I think now 11 years ago and 11 years later, it was worth exactly what I paid for it. Minus of course, the carrying costs and everything else, but it was worth what I paid for it. Maybe a little less, I don't know. And then in the last year it shot up a lot and now it's worth more than what I paid for it. But if I'd sold it in the last 10 years, I would have lost money on it. You know, now it looks like I'll make money, but I'm going to, keep it and maybe it'll go down. It's, as I said, I don't mean, to not like a broken record. It's not an investment. I bought that house because I'm in love with it and, and we love going there, but you know, that's, that's not how to invest.
1: Yeah, no, it's fantastic. I really appreciate that. So I wanted to quickly s- shift gears because you do so much more than real estate. And I would love to talk a little bit about that. You do real estate and advisory work. And I'm curious, you do a lot of mentorship. You have, you're an entrepreneur. You have so many businesses. What drives that in you to, to do more, especially around the mentorship? I feel like you have a, a big heart and, and, a, and a giving back that, that is part of your DNA. So could you speak to that a little bit or, you know, what, what really drives you to do that?
0: You know, we all have our programming and essentially my, I have two pieces of my program that are maybe diametrically opposite But to me. You know, one of the things that I think has probably made me successful and it sort of drives me, you know, I, I'm, I'm a, I'm a soul searcher. I look into my own brain and I try to figure out why am I doing what I'm doing? I mean, yeah, you know, once you've saved up enough money that you know you don't need to go to work every really. day, why go to work? Like why do I do that? Why do I want to help somebody else? Like what what is it that actually does that? And sometimes there isn't really an answer except just down in your soul, that's kind of what makes it tick. I call it my programming, you know, whatever. So there's sort of two programmings in me that that I can't escape and, and I'm not even trying because they, they make me happy. One is I'm just a competitor. I like to win. I don't know why, it's just fun. I don't like to hurt my competition or anything. I just like to win. And so, you know, I want my law firm to become the absolute number one real estate law firm in the world. That's thrilling and exciting for me. Why? I have no idea why. I just want that. Okay, fair enough. On the, you know, mentorship side, uh, I just like to help people. I don't know why. <laughs> I, I just can't help it. I sometimes people think I'm annoying. Always a busy body. You know, you could do this. Oh, you know. Once in a while, and I hope nobody ever sees this thing, I might even suggest to my wife that a, a different dress might look better on her than the one she put on. You know, it's pretty scary and dangerous thing to do, as, as, as most of us men are aware. But, you know, I just sort of like to help people and me do better. So, um, you know, when, when I, I think it's now a, a couple of years ago that, you know, there was a big thing that, you know, women weren't succeeding or, you know, or a, as able to succeed in the real estate world as, as they should. You know, I reached out on my real estate philosopher network and said, hey, if, if a woman would, would like someone to, to help, be a, you know, a, a mentor or guide or whatever, I'd, I'd love to do that. And I ended up uh, mentoring about, I think it's 12 uh, different uh, women and just trying to be helpful. And a lot of times all they wanted from me was, you know, they knew what they wanted to accomplish. They had a plan and they, and they wanted you know introductions to, to people. They wanted whatever it was. I tried my best to be helpful. And then I think uh, I guess it's now started about a year ish ago. There was you know a major push towards African Americans. You know having similar problems in the real estate uh, industry. And I, I did the same and and just tried to be as helpful as I could. And I I hope and I think I, I was helpful to most of the men and most of the women, whether they were you know black or white or whatever it happens to be. And I just tried to be useful to them and and that made me feel good. But I can't tell you why other than it just it just felt good to do that.
1: I really appreciate that. And I feel the same way about it's I think it's innate in us. Like we're we're, I think, in the, in human nature. This programming that you talk about, it's our it's our nature to want to feel good, be good in ourselves, and also see that in in others. So that, that's how I think about it. I like how you said you're you know yourself. You're very introspective. I'm I'm the same. Do you think that that level of depth that you take in knowing yourself is part of what has allowed you also to
0: succeed and like
1: knowing yourself so deeply.
0: Yeah. It, 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 hugely. And it's interesting, you know, people often ask me, and you haven't quite asked me this, but I'll pretend you did. People often ask me, like, what do you attribute your success to? Mm-hmm. And, you know, I've been successful overall, you know, I've done pretty, pretty well, things have gone well for me. And I try to think about what it is. And I'm pretty sure the answer is kind of a surprise. But over the years, I, I became 100% sure how fallible I am how often I'm so sure about something and it turns out I'm just totally, totally wrong. I mean, part of my career was, you know, some humiliation of not being able to make partner at law firms, this thing and that thing. You know, there was times when, you know, my career was going nowhere. I was depressed, I was miserable and nothing, nothing like a little humility to kick you in the stomach and really teach you some lessons. But when I started my law firm, you know, I was the boss. I was the managing partner. You know, I could make all these decisions and I would make them and it was always so sure. And then I would find out that m- more than half the time, probably 80 or 90% of the time, these brilliant ideas out to be busts. And I, 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 I think the thing that I give myself credit for is, is being able to realize that and realizing I don't know everything. I can't really be sure of decisions that they're gonna be the right ones. And this applies, by the way, I think in any business and anyone anyone's doing in their life because you think you're sure, it just doesn't work. And then what your brain does, your brain is an evil little creature. It remembers all the times you were right. It's wonderful. Oh, I was right on this, I was right on that. And then it just throws aside all the stupid things you did. You just, you just don't remember them anymore. And so of course you think you're a brilliant decision maker, but you're really not. Okay, so where does that take you? If you're, if you're like a math guy like me, you say, well, wait a minute, I'm making a decision, okay? How should I make it? If you think about it, I shouldn't really be making a decision assuming it was going to go well. I should make a decision assuming it's going to be a bad decision. And what will happen if that happens? Okay. and if I say, okay, well, you know what? If this is a bad decision, it's not that big a deal. And if it turns out to be good, it's a home run. Let's do it. But if, on the other hand, I look at it and it's really the other way around, if this is wrong, it's a disaster. And if it's right, you know, it's good, but it isn't. Well, I shouldn't do it. This has helped me enormously over my career. At first, instinctively, and now a lot more, you know, didactically with myself, to realize so likely to be wrong I am. I know that's backwards grammar. That I try to be really careful in the way I think of things, to to be a little more paranoid about being wrong than eager to be right. And that is the reason I think I've been successful. And I think that's probably it. I've probably avoided, you know, a lot of disasters. Or oh, actually. My disasters have been not such big disasters. They've been, you know, kind of annoying or kind of, you know, you know, a little depressing, but not fatal.
1: I appreciate how you called the brain an evil little creature because
0: it really is. <laughs> I mean, it really well, it's wonderful, too. It makes you feel good. You know, you, everyone feels like you're so smart and wonderful. And, and it is wonderful that way. But it is tricking you into thinking you're a lot, you know, smarter yeah. or, you know, brilliant than you really are.
1: Yeah, it's true. I mean, we have 188 known biases, I guess. Yeah. The the psychologists have identified 188, not just that confirmation bias that that you mentioned, but there's a ton. Yeah. The the neuroscience and the psychology is really interesting. It's actually great to learn that because it's humbling because as you said, everyone thinks that they're so smart and the brain is so smart and like reason and, and logic is the be all and end all. And, and yet most decisions are made emotionally. So, so I really appreciate that. And thank you for sharing. I know that actually in one of your recent newsletters, the real estate philosopher newsletter, you expounded upon this, this being wrong. And, and it was just, it was just such a great piece of, of writing. And so, so for those that are, that are listening and, and, and we'll get Bruce to, to talk about his book and the real estate, estate philosopher here in, in a couple of minutes, but that newsletter is that realestatephilosopher.com and people can go and, and sign up to your newsletter there. If you're asking me, yes, yeah. it, it is.
0: The real estate philosopher is something I started, I guess, about well, seven years ago, I guess. And, and it, was, it was something that I, you know, look, I like to do different things. It was an idea I had, right? And so that meant there was a good shot. It would be a total flop right? But then I sort of you know, thought about it. Well, if it is, okay, you know what? I'll still have dinner at home. My wife probably give me a hug and life will go on, or it may turn into something really good. So the real estate philosophy is very unique, very unique, if that even makes sense, in that it's, it's, it's dedicated to the idea of coming up with, with ways of looking at things that are not what everyone else is, is saying. If everyone else is sort of saying something or talking, I probably don't really write about it that much. And I try to think, as dispassionately and mathematically, really, as possible at the real estate world. And I think about whatever it is that I've been thinking how it might apply. At heart, I am a philosopher as a philosophy major in college a zillion years ago. And I read all these books and I get these ideas from other people, brilliant thinkers. And then I apply them to the real estate world and come up with, with things that are, are, are different. The one that the article you're, you're mentioning was a book uh, there's a guy, there were two people, Tversky and Kahneman wrote a, a very famous book called Thinking Fast and Slow, won the Nobel Prize. It was about how our brains think well, differently and everything. Uh, amazing book. And then he wrote a new a book that just came out called Noise. And I think it's only a few months old. And I started reading it. Tversky apparently has passed away. Kahneman is still writing. And, and basically, the way Kahneman analyzes decisions, he's, he talks about the fact that there's two things that throw your decisions off. One of them is, is what Adapia just mentioned, which is bias. Bias is a lot easier to deal with because at least you can think about what it is, understand it and try to you know, work around it or just not let it happen. The other thing he calls noise. And these are things that are really, really difficult. This is where your brain you know, tricks you and you think you're right and wrong. And he applies these things to you know how you do your hiring process and a lot of things in running the business. But anyway, I, I started took that book, which I read, and found it was very, very eye-opening, and then try to apply that thinking to the real estate industry in my latest real estate philosopher article. And that's pretty much what I, I do as the real estate.
2: Yeah. One comment I'll make as a consumer of legal services is all these things that you're working on are what make your law firm so interesting to me. Because my, my opinion, and maybe you differ with this, at the highest levels, Real estate services, attorney work are somewhat commoditized, right? You can find different lawyers at different firms who effectively do the same actual legal work are going to provide you with very similar legal advice, but it's all these other things the a useful Bruce, which we haven't talked about, but where, you know, the mechanism by which you're Pairing capital and investors, and just trying to add value in whatever way you can, whether it's thought leadership, content, mentorship, all that stuff. From my perspective, is is very important. No, no question here, but just a, a comment as you know, we've gotten to know each over each other over the last, I guess it's been three or four years now. Something that's really stood out to me, and a reason we wanted to have you on the podcast as a guest.
0: Thank you. It sounds like we rehearsed this because it's so nice for you to say that. But but no, you just threw that in, and, and thank you. You know, and it, it, it is true in, in terms of, you know, us, our ability to, you know, make our clients happy on the law firm side. You know, we, we think of what we're supposed to do as a law firm with six words, which is this, help our clients grow their business. And that really is, you know, the heart of, of what you're referring to. And, and that requires an understanding of the legal, obviously the legal, but understanding the industry, what they care about, how to help them, you know, advise them, guide them, whatever it happens to be with the knowledge that I'm not going to help them buy a building because I can't figure out whether it's a good deal or not. But on everything else, I can be very useful. And I try very hard to add more value as as Dan, you're nice enough to point out uh, to clients. And they, they really do like that a lot. Yes.
1: So Bruce, we talked about the real estate philosopher and you mentioned your, your foot, fir- your first book, pardon me. So your new book, you have a new book out or it's about to come out. Can you, uh, can you tell us a little bit about this
0: book? So, okay. So it, it, it's called the real estate philosopher's guide to, to, to real estate. And it's, it's got, it's got all my brain power in it. Okay. So I think I have, any useful brain power, then you know this is, this is the book up for you. As I sort of try to mention, at heart, I'm a thinker, a creator, a philosopher, somebody who likes to think. My number one, well, actually, I, my number one thing to do in the world is to go out to dinner with my wife. I am utterly crazy about my wife. I've been married to her for a long, long, long time, more than 30 years, and I'm nuts about it. So going out to dinner with her is by far my number one. Second is sitting by the pool with a pad and a pen, and no iPhone, and just trying to think of ideas. And I just love that. I just love to think. It's, it's a hobby. And it just keeps growing. And I can just sit there and burble away with, with all sorts of things. And then I add into that mix, I'm omnivorous. Like anyone writes a book, whether it's noise or it's, you know, it's how to win friends and influence people on the other hand. Whatever it is, I read all of these books. And I just devour them. And I get all these ideas. And I try to, to do something with it. So I've been writing The Real Estate Philosopher, as I said, for seven years. The book has really got several parts in it. The first part is my best attempt to guide you on how to succeed in the real estate world. Whether you're a beginner, like a kid out of college thinking, oh, I want to get my first job in real estate, or you're the CEO of a major real estate organization. And, And for what it's worth, a lot of my articles speak very powerfully to the CEO types and at the same time, they're really good for like little kids. I don't know why it just it just it just resonates. So the first part of it is is my best advice how to succeed or avoid failure in the real estate world. The second part has all of my articles, every single one in 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 there. And each article, you know, whether it's actually the noise one isn't because it's after the book got, got written, but all the articles are in there. And then I have an intro for each article with my sort of guidance of how you could use. This article to help you or your business or whatever you're doing in the in the real estate uh, world. And then finally, the last part has my predictions, which we alluded to earlier. What I think will happen in the future. I apologize for sounding arrogant, but I've been pretty damn accurate, almost ridiculously accurate in every single thing I thought would happen before COVID has happened. Like almost, almost like I knew the future. Obviously, I don't, and I know that sooner or later my predictions will revert to the mean because I'm not, you know, omniscient. But I have been very, very good at figuring out where things are likely to go, and all of my p- predictions are are in the uh, last part of the book. The book is good for for like, I guess almost anyone in the real estate world that, that thinks of themselves as a thinker and likes ideas that are not mainstream. It's great for you know young boy or girl that's just come out of college and is thinking of real estate. It's a great gift because it's all the different. Ideas burbling around. And it's also very useful. Somebody's running either a business or a platform or trying to accomplish something. And, you know, I I, I think it's a really good book and you should buy it.
1: <laughs> I think so too. Uh, you were kind enough to send some, some excerpts of it to, to help me prepare for, for the interview. And I concur. Oh, you
0: know, I, I apologize for interrupting, but it, yes, I, I forgot to say it's going to be officially in hardcover, not hardcover, soft. Self- I don't know, whatever it is. It's going to be officially released on October 5th. Uh, I think eBooks are going to be available in September. And, you know, my Real Estate Philosopher will certainly have a lot about where to get the book.
1: Perfect. So then people can go to Real Estate Philosopher, sign up and we'll include a link to the page where people can pre-order the book as well. So that's fantastic. So Bruce, thank you so much for spending um, some time with us today. This has been a wonderful conversation. Uh, Really appreciate you for everything that you do. I'm so honored to know you and to know that you're in this industry, helping people in all these different ways. So just, just so much gratitude. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you for being so gracious and back the other way. Thanks for having me. I'm I'm definitely a believer in alpha. I am not just saying that I I introduce you to many clients and proud to do so. And I think, I think what you're providing is very, very powerful ability to evaluate the investments on behalf of, of your investors and, and put, put them onto your platform and give them a chance to, to really do what I was saying earlier on in terms of evaluating investments, diversifying properly. And, and picking winners so that will hopefully be really good for them. So I'm a fan of Alpha, and it's, it's certainly mutual. I'm honored to be here, and I thank you. Thank you.
1: Thanks for tuning in to Real Wealth, Real Health. We hope that you've enjoyed today's episode and found it both informative and insightful. We welcome all your questions and your feedback about today's episode, and especially we welcome your questions about specific topics that you would like us to cover. So shoot us an email at podcast at And if you have a moment, we really appreciate ratings and reviews as it helps us grow our online community and our interactions with you. And we'll also be linking to a number of relevant articles on topics that we might have touched on during our conversations. Some of them are broad, some of them are technical, but we're always aiming to provide information that helps you better understand the mechanics of building this healthy financial foundation, especially if you're looking to do this with real estate. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business
0: podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.